0: This morning we're going to begin a new sermon series, a short sermon series that only lasts three weeks, and it's going to close out the church calendar. We we don't we don't follow the church calendar as closely as maybe some other church traditions tend to do, but we do follow it fairly closely, and we do uh, try to acknowledge the, the the high seasons in the life of of the church calendar, and of course. Uh, It's getting ready to start all over again here in just three weeks from today. That's the first Sunday of Advent, if you can believe it, just three weeks from now. Um, But this week and the next two weeks close out the end of the church calendar, culminating in what we call Christ the King Sunday, which celebrates and acknowledges and anticipates the Lord's triumphant return. And so I want to finish the calendar this year like I try to most years. I think uh, as I looked back, four out of the last six years, we have ended the season Uh, with some sort of series that points to some aspect of the Lord's return, or uh, what we would call the end times, and I think that's fitting especially now because it seems to be a topic on many people's minds right now. Many of you, perhaps, even, as you have uh, Seen what's been taking place in the Middle East. I know at least some of you are thinking about these things because I've received emails and uh, comments and questions and other sorts of things over the last number of weeks. And, um, you know, honestly, whether uh, things are chaotic in the Middle East or not, this is a, a topic that is important for the church to think about, not because bad things or uh, unique things are happening in the world, but because it is a consistent topic of interest in the scriptures. The New Testament writers, in particular, were very interested in what what they would call the last days or what we would call end times, but not just because of world events they they were emphasizing a certain attitude or a certain posture towards the return of Christ in the consummation of history and that 's because they were convinced that Christ might return in their own lifetimes so for for Paul and for Peter and for others who were writing in in the first, within the first generation of the Christian church, there was already a, a very clear sense that the end times were not a future distant reality, but a, a present reality, and that the return of Christ is something that was perhaps very imminent. Now, unlike many people today who are only interested because there's a war in Israel, the early Christians lived every day with a particular eschatological hope, a hope in end things and things pertaining to the return of Christ. And that hope issued forth in a particular type of attitude and behavior. And that's what I want to explore over the next several weeks. All right, so if you're here looking for me to, to tell you how certain things mean certain things, you're not gonna find that here. That's not my heart. And that's not my interest. My interest is in what the scriptures tell is the right attitude and the right type of life that believers are to live in light of the imminent return of Christ, so that's what we're going to be studying for the next few weeks. From we're just going to spend all this time in one chapter of the Bible, First Peter chapter one. I know there's lots of other chapters we can go to, uh, but that's the one that I felt led to preach from for the next few weeks. And our sermon text this morning is just a single verse. So there's there's a lot that can be said on this topic, um, and I'm going to do my very best to stay within the time constraints today. But I make no promises to you. First Peter chapter thirteen, uh, chapter one verse thirteen. It begins with a word that is usually an indicator that there's something that we need to take notice of in the verses that precede it. That is, the, the word in the NLT anyway, which is so, um, but many of your translations probably have the word therefore. If you have a, an NIV or a, a New American Standard, a New Revised Standard, a New King James, um, an ESV, Pretty much everyone else says, therefore, unless you're a King James reader, in which the word is wherefore, which is a word that I don't think anyone in here ever uses, uh, but if you did, it means the same thing. It means, what has come before, now this. You see the, the relationship in the text. So it demands that we pay attention to what came before. So if we're focusing on verse 13, what has preceded it? Well, from the start of Peter's letter, he's been reminding the people of God of the greatness of God's salvation. They've been reminded of the incredible things that God has done for them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he does that so that they might live with a hopeful expectation of what is yet to come. Look at verses three through five here. I I guess I I misled you. I said I was only reading one verse, but guess what? I'm gonna read a few extra verses. I'm gonna add a few verses here. Verse three says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live, here it is, with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation which is ready to be to be revealed on the last day for all to see. And so, with that in mind, let's look at verse 13 where our emphasis and focus is going to be this morning. So, or therefore, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Now, all the imperatives in the scriptures, that is, those those exhortations, those, those commands, those things that the scriptures demand of us, come on the tail end of a therefore. It's a, it's a body of instruction that that is followed with a meaning and an application. So there's there's teaching, but then there's the so what? And those two things are always going to go hand in hand in the scriptures, that instruction and then the practice, what we are to think and what we are to do, what we believe and what it means for our lives. Teaching without application can only ever be so beneficial to you and to me. That's why we at this church and traditionally in the Christian church for 2,000 years, that's why the church, and this one especially, holds preaching in higher esteem than teaching, and that's not to say the teaching doesn't have value, and that's not to say that preaching doesn't have teaching. Of course, there's teaching in preaching. I'm teaching right now, and you're receiving a, a body of instruction. Your, your minds, I hope and pray, are being expanded a little bit, and you're, you're taking in information and data, and you're thinking about those things and processing those things. But preaching is more than just teaching. Preaching is teaching for a response, I I have an expectation that when I when I preach the word of God that you don't just come out of here knowing extra data, but that you come con, you leave convicted, that you leave motivated, that you leave encouraged, that you want to take this body of instruction and you want to put it into practice in your life. And oftentimes, I spell out specific ways that you can apply these things for your life. But but usually I I give the Holy Spirit. <laughs> You're welcome, right? How dare I say I give the Holy Spirit anything? But my heart is to allow the Holy Spirit to have ample room to take these truths and and help apply them to your mind and your heart and how these things work out in your life. He's gonna be the one that's speaking in between the lines. He's the one who's, yes, he's in the words, but he's between the words, and he's taking these truths, and he's applying them and helping you live these things out and work these things out in your life. So it's not just knowledge that I hope to convey here but knowledge that motivates and provokes a response. But of course, the flip side of that, that this idea of, you know, of just merely um, teaching without any application, which is only so helpful, the flip side of that is, if I were to give you just a bunch of do's and don'ts without ever telling you the why. And I can tell you that can be not only unhelpful, that can be dangerous. Because we're all, for some reason, human beings are so prone towards devolving into legalism. You, the, the preacher told me I should do this or should not do that. He never told me why, but I'm just going to do it. And somehow, in this, this warped view of the Christian life, we boil the Christian life down to just a list of rules. And that's never my heart either. So it's not one or the other, teaching or application, it's both. They go together. And Peter wants the believers in the first century and the, the believers in in this century, to know what they should do in light of who God is and what God has done. With an eye, of course, toward the second coming of Christ. Verse 13, the second half, he says, put all your hope. Therefore, in light of all this, what you know about God, what God has done for you, what God is going to do, in light of all that, put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Did you detect in that, that, that tone of the already but not yet? Did you t- detect that there in that half verse? We've talked about that in recent months, this idea that salvation is, is, a, is to be understood in an already but not yet sort of way. In other words, there is, there's a, a dimension or an aspect, a fullness of salvation that has yet to come. It is something that that comes when Christ comes. Now, I'm not going to suggest to you that the salvation that is to be revealed is in any way distinct from or separate from the salvation that has already been offered and that you have received into your life. The the two belong together. It's it's all the one great salvation that that God is providing for his people. So they're they're not detached from each other. They're not two separate things. It's not as if Jesus offers you something today, but then he's going to offer you something wholly different in the future. It's also not to say that, that what God has already done in your life now isn't important or isn't real. Of course it is important and it's real. It's the greatest gift in your life, what God has done and the salvation that he has begun in you. But that's just the point. It is a salvation that has begun that is not yet complete. You might say, well, Pastor Sean, the work of Christ is complete. And I, of course it is. Everything that Jesus has done to provide this salvation for you today has been done. There's nothing left for him to do on our behalf. His offering is a sufficient, once for all time offering. He never has to climb up onto a cross another time. His blood didn't just get you to a certain point, but you need more of it to get you to the finish line. No, his grace, his blood, his mercy, his sacrifice, his life on in, in behalf of yours, is sufficient. We need nothing more and we need nothing less. However, the work of Christ in us is still a work in progress. You and I have not arrived. And if you think you have, well, just give yourself a few moments. Take a drive down a, a road with a slow driver in front of you. Get a Walmart grocery order where you ordered some produce and then when you go to fix dinner, you see that the cilantro is moldy. Fill in the blank. Things that happen in life, things that we don't expect. Someone crosses you, someone hurts you, something happens and you see and judge and and assess your own attitude, your own heart, your own reaction and it takes two seconds to realize you are a work in progress. You have not arrived, friends, and I have not arrived. We, we're, we have been saved, we have been justified, we have been sanctified, but only initially saved and justified and sanctified. There is a, a finality, there is a, a consummation of what has been begun in your life that we wait for, that we look ahead to, that we long for. And that is really important to remember and to keep in mind as we seek to live out the implications of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing and what Christ is going to do. We're heading home, aren't we? But we're not home yet. In fact, two years ago, I believe the series title was Almost Home. We're almost home. That almost gets more and more emphatic day after day, doesn't it? The almostness of the end is seemingly growing and in history and in our lives, but we're not there yet. And so, Peter says, therefore, put all of your hope, all of it, in what is to come. In fact, in the original language, that exhortation more literally says, fix your hope completely, which is a little bit different of a nuance, isn't it? You know, if you say put all your hope, then you would think it means, well, I'm taking whatever hope I have and I'm putting it in something and that is right, that, absolutely. I'm telling you whether you have a little hope or a lot of hope, put, take all of the hope you have and put it in, in Christ. But the emphasis is just as much, if not more so, on the completeness of the fixing of the hope, the, the effort, the intentionality. Friends, some of you have a whole bunch of hope in what Christ is going to, to do when he returns, in his return and w- in the salvation that he provides. Some of you have a tremendous amount of hope. If we're talking the, a quantity of hope, some of you have a very little bit of hope. <laughs> Some of you have, well, it's almost indiscernible at times. And what the, what the apostle was saying, yes, take all of it and give it to him and put it in him, but do it completely. That there's, there's no, you know, I, I, I put it half-heartedly in, into him. And maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but for me it's a, it's a heightened exhortation. It's an it's a exclamation mark type of command. Fix it. All, put it all completely in him. Whatever hope you have, put it in the one who is coming again. If indeed, his past work for you and for me is a sure thing. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I want you to ask your own heart this morning if you truly believe in your heart, maybe you don't have all the answers in your head, but in your heart, do you truly believe that the past work of Christ is a sure thing that it actually happened? In that it has actually been sufficient. Okay? Here's the thing. If that past work is a sure thing, if we truly believe that what he has done is, is sufficient, and he has done what the Scriptures say he has done, well then what I think Peter is saying is, we are to hold the completion of that work at his second coming as equally as sure. Interesting, isn't it? So we're so convinced and compelled by the past and yet we have doubts about the future and the scriptures forbid that. Faith in, in fact, I would go as far as to say faith in his past work in some way is incomplete apart from hope in his future work. You can't have one and not the other. They go together. If you truly believe that what he has done is real and that what he is doing is real and that's something you've built your life upon, well, you can just Be just as convinced. And you can build your life just as much on the work he is going to do. And that should bring great confidence to your heart. That should bring great joy to your life. That though you and I are works in progress, there will be a completion of the progress. I saw Nino a second ago and I'm thinking about construction projects. Man, sometimes construction projects can drag on forever. Not Nino's, he gets them done on time. In fact, he's always early because he exceeds expectations every time. But some construction projects, it's like the bridge to nowhere. We're just building, we're building, we're building. Listen, your life is not a bridge to nowhere. He will complete what he has started. Paul says it himself in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I, Paul says, I am certain. There's that, that certainty, and we're going to explore that here in a couple of weeks. We're going to come back to this idea of certainty. But Paul says, I am certain that God who began that good work in your life, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He will finish what he has started. And so, with that in view, consider the following two imperatives from our verse here, here this morning. And that is, is prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. That's how I want to use the rest of our time here. I want to look at these two imperatives here. Look at the first one. Prepare your mind for action. Now, when he says mind, what is he talking about? Is he just talking about, you know, the ability to have rational thought? Is he talking about, you know, the seat of emotions? Is he talking about the capacity to think and feel and and process information? Is that what he's talking about? Well, uh, to a degree, yes, but I think specifically he's referring more directly to the faculties that guide and direct conduct, right? It's, it's the volitional part of you that processes, but also the, what you think issues forth in particular type of behavior. It is the whole spiritual and mental attitude from which all of your behavior flows. It's less about you know, receiving and retaining information and data, and it's more about being determined to live a certain way, Literally, the Greek says, and I love this expression, um, I wish we talked like this more because it's so, uh, it's, there's, a, there's a, a graphic nature to this. In the original language, he actually says, gird up the loins of your mind. Isn't gird a funny word? I love that word, gird up the loins of your mind. Of course, you know, gir- girding up the loins, what that refers to, of course. You know, imagine yourself wearing a traditional robe, you know, and it's, it's kind of, Lots of fabric. There's lots of movement, and you can imagine if you're, if you're, you know, if there's a, a lion chasing you, and you need to run. You know, that fabric is going to get tangled up in your legs, or your legs are going to get tangled up in the fabric, and it's going to impede your ability to get away. And so, girding up the loins is basically taking that fabric and tucking it into your belt, right? You're going to cinch it up. You're going to put it. In, you're going to put it in a in a position that enables you to make a quick getaway. That's what girding up the loins. Means, Remember on the Passover, the night that the Lord would be bringing deliverance to, to his people in Egypt, it says in Exodus 12, 11, in the NLT it says, be fully dressed. But the, but the literal expression there is, gird up your loins. Right? Wear your sandals, carry your walking stick in your hand, eat the meal with urgency. This is the Lord's Passover. The angel of death is coming. Tie your shoes for crying out loud. And if you're wearing Velcro, fasten the Velcro. I wish it was in style for men to wear Velcro shoes, don't you? How, man, whoever came up with this tying the knots business is the worst. Gird up your loins. Eat your meal with urgency. Be ready to go. The angel of death is at the door. And at the same time, the angel of death is bringing judgment. And Yahweh, your deliverer, is about to save you. This is the night of salvation. Now is the time to be ready. To be ready. To be ready. It's not tomorrow. It's not next week. It's not some, you know, indeterminate time in the future. Yeah, it might happen tonight, but really it might. It's more probable to happen farther down the road. No, it's happening now. It's happening now. God's judgment and God's salvation are happening now. And in the same way, Peter says God's final judgment, God's final deliverance is now. There's a nowness that we have to take into consideration. It's not coming in some sort of localized you know, regional way, like it did for Israel and Egypt. No, it's coming in a final climactic end to all of human history. Therefore, get your get your mind right, get your heart right, be determined to make every preparation for it, as if it could happen in the the blink of an eye. Which it could. Be intentional, the apostle says, in embracing a posture of readiness. You know, people are looking for signs of the end times, but guess what? Friends, we are in the end times. They're looking for signs of the end times because that gives them this sense of comfort. Well, once I know we're in the end times, then I can get my act together. That's not what the scriptures teach you. I, I believe the scriptures teach very clearly that the end times are the, is the church age, We are in, the church has always been in the last days. And as such, there is a particular attitude, a particular posture, a particular frame of mind and frame of heart, in particular uh, readiness and watchfulness that should define the life of God's people. What is your posture? What is your frame of mind? Is it ready for what is coming? Can you say you're truly ready for Jesus to step into the onto the the scene of of, the, of world history and bringing everything to to a conclusion? Are you ready for that? You know, contrary to appearances, I don't just casually stroll into the pulpit on Sunday mornings. Every sermon is the product of weeks and especially a concentration of days, but no sermon is just a few days of work. It's, it's weeks of, of thinking ahead and, and, and discerning a direction. Um, in fact, I don't know if there's an hour. I don't want to be hyperbolic. I, uh, I don't know if there's a, a two hours, any given two hours, where at some point I'm not thinking about the com- next message or a message coming up or how something that 's going on might com- might be communicated to the church or how something could be used in a, a redeeming way to, to help people understand god 's word it's sort of a, a constant mode of of thinking and pray- prayerfulness and mindfulness and attention to to what needs to be proclaimed from this pulpit and all of that is is built upon literally years of training <laughs> literal years of training i, I countless hundreds, thousands of hours studying and sitting in classes and debating and sitting in discipleship groups and formation for years and years, a decade of my life built a, prepared a foundation upon which all the preparation is built. And it's it's not just, you don't just roll out of bed on Sunday morning and, you know, put on a, a sport coat and talk. It doesn't happen that way. Maybe someone can pull that off. I can't pull that off. There's prayer, there's study, there's practice, there's review, there's mental reps, there's a, there's a an attitude, a, a a mindset, there's a headspace that is cultivated in order to be able to stand and and preach, and the process matters. It doesn't just happen. Now, can God supernaturally work in a, a preacher so that in the moment? You know, uh, all the truth and all the interpretation and all the application, all that can come together. Absolutely. Ab- God can do anything. But I don't presume upon God like that. Because I believe God is just as much, if not more so, in, interested in the preparation to the presentation. Yeah. He cares about the status of the heart. He cares about the, the investment of time and energy and passion and devotion to the, the intimacy of communion that produces message on Sunday morning. He cares about the process. The process, the the headspace, the mindset, all of that matters. And here's my point. If it matters for being a good steward of the gifts and calling for a job, how much more does it matter? For being a good steward of the gift of God's grace in your life and the call to be a son or daughter by grace through faith? How much more does it matter? What is God most interested in in our lives? Is it to be able to stand and preach a good sermon, or is he more greatly interested in having a people who are watchful and ready for his return? If being a good steward of God's gifts and graces and calling for a job is important. How much more important is it for the the eternal destiny of your soul? You don't just roll out of bed into heaven, friends. Yes, Christ's work is sufficient. Yes, his work for you is complete. And yes, you add nothing to it. I'm not saying that you have to work to get to heaven. That's not my point. My point is there's a particular mindset, there's a particular commitment, there's a particular readiness and hopefulness and watchfulness that is befitting those who have received the grace of God and are anticipating its completion. It matters. It matters to him. And it should matter to you. If indeed you are truly convinced of the certainty of what Christ has done in the past, then you should be equally convinced of the certainty of what he's going to do in the future. And that certainty, when coupled with the imminence that Jesus himself stressed, demands a readiness. The certainty plus the imminence demands a readiness. Look at what the Lord himself taught. We've gone here before, but I'm gonna go back here again. Luke chapter 12. Listen to what he says in this parable in verses 35 through 40. Be dressed for service. Jesus doesn't want to come back and find you in your pajamas. That's a kind of funny way of making a point. He wants you to be ready. Be dressed for service. Keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him let him in the moment he arrives let him in the moment he arrives and knocks the servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded i tell you the truth he himself will seat them put on an apron and serve them as they sit and eat he may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn but whenever he comes he will reward the servants who are ready understand this if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time. All the time. For the Son of Man will come when least expected. I know there are signs of the seasons. I know there are, there's prophecy and fulfillment. But I take the Lord himself very seriously when he says he will come when you least expect it. So be careful who you're listening to. Be careful what you're reading, what you're filling your mind and your heart with, where your hope and your expectation lies. I'm not saying everyone who says things a little differently than, than I am is wrong. That's not my point. My point is I would, I would I caution you to take the, the word of the Lord very seriously. He says he will come when least Expected. Con- contrast that then with what he'll say a few verses later in verses 45 and 46. But what if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while and he begins breaking, uh, beating the other servants and parting and getting drunk. What happens then? Well, the master will return unannounced and unexpected and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. You know, it's interesting to me that Jesus here contrasts readiness with revelry. He contrasts readiness with revelry. What is revelry? Party it up, man. Let's get drunk. Let's let's live it up today. He's not coming back for a while. That's the whole spirit of that. I'm not telling you never have a party again. I love parties. I love get-togethers. I love spending time with, with people that are close to my, my life, and we, we share common interests, and we have a great time together. Jesus is not saying don't have a party. What he's saying is people who are living it up as if they have time. It's, a, it's an attitude. It's a posture of the heart. That's what He's after. And there's a contrast between the readiness he's looking for and what can often define a person's life, even people of faith. He's not talking about anyone else but his servants. He's talking about his servants in the parable. There's a revelry that can characterize your life that puts you in danger. What's the headspace for someone engaged in that? Well, it's all about the moment, isn't it? It's even beyond that. It's, a, it's an attitude of rebellion. It's one that it says, the commands and the demands of the Lord upon my life only apply right before he returns. Do you ever live that way? Where there's some particular sin or some particular decision or choice or something in your life that you really are, hmm, I'm just gonna, just real quick, I'm gonna, Jesus will forgive me later. He's not here yet. He's coming. I'm, I know you don't think that way, but we live that way sometimes. We live that way. I'll tell you what, I don't want the Lord to to come into the kitchen with my hand in the cookie jar. I don't. What is the the spirit, the heart of revelry? It's, It's an attitude that says the moment in my impulses, in my desires, in my proclivities, those matter greater than the Lord's demand upon my life. And the the impulse, the desire, bears more heavily upon my will than what the Lord has said himself. It's not a life that's characterized by self-control. That's what the NLT renders this here. There in verse 13, prepare your mind for action and exercise self-control. It's not a life marked by self-control. It's a a life marked by a lack of self-control one that is indulging in the senses, which ironically, for those engaged in revelry, if we're going to be so specific to include drinking alcohol, your senses are impaired. That's the opposite of self-control. It's the opposite of having the right kind of headspace for, for the Lord's return. It's one that says, I've got time. I'll live it up now and get things right later. Well, the ironic thing about the impaired is that they don't think or walk straight at all. Let alone have the most important matters in life in proper order. You know, it's almost like Peter here knew a thing or two about what Jesus had to say on the topic, isn't it? It's funny, it's, it's almost as if Peter is giving us a commentary on the parable from Luke chapter 12. Where Jesus is, is demanding alertness, he's demanding a sobriety, He's demanding a particular mindset, and then Peter here is spelling it out for you and for me. Notice the coupled imperatives. I told you there are two of them. The first one, yes, gird up the loins of your mind. There's a particular headspace, mindset, posture, attitude of the mind and heart that is befitting those waiting for the return of the Lord. But then he says, as we've already begun to say, exercise self-control, which literally in the original language says, be sober in spirit. Be sober in spirit in spirit. And so, just as instruction and practice go hand in hand, so do readiness and sobriety. Interesting, isn't it? Readiness and sobriety go together. And I think sobriety, of course, means more than just being free from the effects of alcohol. And I, I know when you say sober, you instantly go to alcohol and its effects. I think that's included here, but I don't think it's strictly just that. I I was asked recently about my personal convictions about alcohol. Um, It's not a topic that I I really almost ever talk about from the pulpit. Um, It's not that I don't care about the topic or that I don't have opinions or convictions on the topic. It's just in the Lord's providence, it's just not something that has come across uh, my mind and heart as we share. But if you're wondering, I'm going to tell you. Are you ready for that? I don't know if you're going to, to think more of me or less of me as a result of the next two minutes, but you're going you're to hear my personal convictions uh, this morning. So I will say this first. To my knowledge, there's no Bible verse that I can point to that says, thou shalt not drink alcohol. And so, because I know of no verse that says that, I am no interest in making my personal convictions some sort of law for anyone else. Okay, so this is not me demanding anything of you. This is me telling you my own personal convictions. I, for one, practice total abstinence from drinking alcohol. And I, I base that on a certain set of principles. There's three main principles, and I'm going to share them with you. The first comes from Romans 12, verses 13 and 14, where Paul says, each one of you will give a personal account to God. So I'm going to stand before God one day, and I'm going to give him an account of my life. And he says, decide now to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. And so, principle number one is, I will abstain from alcohol as part of a larger commitment to avoid ever being a stumbling block to another brother or sister in Christ. For me, it's a small price to pay that you will not stumble in any way. Okay, that's principle number one. Principle number two. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 says, this is Paul once again, he's saying, we, we apostles, live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us. So that's That same principle number one there re, re, restated. But then he says, and no one will find fault with my ministry. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. And so for me, principle number two is, as a minister of the gospel, I want nothing in my life that might bring reproach or dishonor to the name of Christ. I want nothing in my life that even could potentially have a detrimental impact on my witness for him. Okay? So concern for my brothers and sisters, concern for the name and and honor of the name of Christ, and my concern that others might not be in any way turned away from him because of my my choices in life. And thirdly, and not least significantly, and this kind of touches on what we're saying here, I take seriously this exhortation. And not just the one in 1 Peter, but all throughout the New Testament that says, We as Christians, in light of what Christ has done, and in light of what He is doing, and in light of what He's going to do, we take seriously the call to live a life marked by sobriety of mind and of heart. And so, with that in mind, I don't want any indulgence in, this, in the sensual, anything that could impair my readiness for His return. And I have drank alcohol before, I know exactly what it does. I'm no fool. And, and for my life, I don't want anything that would stand between Christ and my readiness for his return. And so, that's my threefold reason for my own personal convictions. A concern for the fellow believer. A concern for the non-believer. In the name of Christ. And of course, concern for myself. I, I want to be ready. I want to be ready. And, mm-hmm. That's what we're preaching this morning here, yeah. No, the, um, what was the verse? Uh, 1 Peter 1.13, our, yeah. our sermon text. First 1 Peter 1.13, be sober, be sober of mind and a heart. Yeah. yeah. Last, um, hey, Barbary, let's, 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 why don't you ask me after the sermon, okay? And we'll, we'll finish then, okay? We'll I'll answer the question then. I want to get back to Peter's deeper point about sobriety here. Right? I sort of did a little aside here so that you can, you know, kind of get it, since you're, maybe you were wondering, maybe you weren't. Um, take it or leave it. That's just my own personal convictions for myself and why I have chosen and why my family has chosen a particular lifestyle. And I'm not saying it's better or worse than anyone else's. Okay, I respect that there's other, other perspectives and there's other convictions. And I would hope you don't hold your personal convictions over me. All right? And so let's have a, a spirit of, of Christian love and, and uh, mutual respect on, on, in all these matters. But I want to get back to Peter's larger point all right. His larger point, his deeper point, point concerning sobriety. I think Peter would say, look, it's not just a matter of drinking or not drinking. What Peter is saying is, let nothing, let nothing in your life dull you or impair you for what is coming. Do you hear that? That's not Sean's personal conviction. I think that's what the apostle himself is saying in, in God's word. Let nothing in your life Impair your readiness for his return. Is there anything in your life that is holding you back from being ready for him? And it could be a sin, or it could, be a, it could be even a godly desire. And hear me when I say this. Sometimes we let desires for good things even come above desire for the gift giver. I told you before, there was a time in my life where I, I wanted the Lord to return, but not until after I'd gotten married. Maybe that doesn't connect with any of you, but I know there's some young people that might be tempted to think that way. I once thought that way. There were certain good things in life that I wanted to experience before the Lord returned. And I'm telling you, that is a wrong view, a wrong headspace for the Christian. How dare I want the thing that points to the greater thing more than the greater thing itself? Let nothing, nothing impair your readiness. Look, Alive, be alert, indeed. Chapter four, verse seven. In the same book, Peter will use the exact same words. The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. That doesn't sound like the same thing, but listen to the original language. It is be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Have the right headspace. Be sober. It's the same thing. For what purpose? For the purpose of prayer. In other words, whatever it takes to maintain a thoughtful, steady, intentional, consistent communion with the Lord. Because friends, that is what it's going to take. That is what it's going to take to be ready. Not just some past thing that God has done for you. It's going to take a present, deliberate, intentional communion with God. He is going to be your strength. He is going to be your you're the, resources, the resource that you need to persevere. He's the one who's going to fill you with faith and fill you with hope and fill you with life, fill you with everything that you need to make it from now till then. Be thoughtful, be sober for the purpose of communion with God. Sobriety is not only essential, by the way, to properly waiting for the Lord, but for resisting the devil. Because in chapter five, he says the same thing. He says, stay alert which is the third time now in this one letter where we've seen that Greek word translated sober, self-controlled, clear-headed, whatever you want to call it. Let nothing impair you. Stay alert. Watch out or stay awake. Be on guard for your great enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This is very practical teaching here from the apostle because not only can the master return at any minute, But there's an enemy of your soul on the prowl just waiting, just waiting for the opportunity to gain a foothold in your heart. Maybe that's principle number four, Barbary. uh, That's okay. We'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. Yeah, we'll come back to that. So principle number four, I don't want to give the devil a foothold in my life in any way. He would love nothing more than for me to, to just give him the slightest little crack by which he can begin to slither into my life. I don't want that. And I hope you don't want that in any way either. We can't wait around until certain things happen that appear to fulfill some specific biblical prophecy before we start living as though we are in the end times. Think about it this way, and I'm and with this I'll I'm pretty much done. I know I've gone a little long. Thank you for bearing with me. But but think about this for a second. If Hamas is destroyed completely, and Hezbollah, or any of these terror groups that are causing all this trouble, if, if these organizations are destroyed completely, and war in Israel completely ends tomorrow, and a, a new era of peace comes into the region, let me ask you this, are any of the things that Peter is saying here suddenly less relevant or true? And I ask that because many people see what's going on over there and they think suddenly, oh, maybe now's the end time. And my point is, what if it ended tomorrow? Do you go back into the way of thinking where, oh, maybe we're not in the end times. Therefore, the apostle tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and further submit to one another out of reverence, For Christ, the days are evil. Time is short. The devil is on the prowl. And Christ is coming soon. In light of these things, church, is there a sober, watchful, ready hope that defines your life? I heard on a football podcast this week Stay ready, so you don't have to get ready. And that's my heart and my desire for you. Stay ready, so that you don't have to get ready. Pastor Jeff, please come and thank you, Lord, for the um, for the in one sense the certainty of your return, but also thank you for the ambiguity of it. Thank you that no one knows the day or the hour except the Father. Because if we did know, well, we'd probably probably be tempted to be like the wicked servant who would seek to live it up, partying and drinking and abusing those around us, indulging in whatever appetites we have at the expense of others, rather than being watchful and ready and sober. Thank you, Lord, for the certainty coupled with the ambiguity. Thank you Lord that your your word is clear. And I do pray Holy Spirit that you would take this body of teaching teaching with a with the goal of motivating the believer into action. I pray that you would take it and that you would be making particular personal application to each person here. Because the truth is your word is is alive and active and you, are, you superintend its proclamation and, and you seek to apply it in a personal way to each person's life. And I ask for you to do that even now that you would bring clarity on a particular issue or you would convict, that you would encourage, that you would motivate, that you would purify, that you would guide and direct and illuminate our minds and our hearts that, that its, its effect would, would be brought to bear in our lives, that it would not return empty to you. Lord, may we be a people who are open to it and we're willing to take whatever action is necessary for us to be watchful and ready for your return. So Lord, guide and direct these following moments and the moments to come where we put our faith into action and be glorified through it all, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.